Hello, everybody, and welcome to Ask the CEO with Avraham Gatile. Today, I'd like to introduce a very special guest. She's a writer, a novelist, a watercolorist, and a research scientist. She's the author of two very popular science fiction books. It is my pleasure to welcome Diane Dotson. Welcome, Diane. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure having you. You know, I read both of your books, Heliopause and Ephemeris, and those were just amazing works that you did. Uh, so, you. so give us a, a short synopsis about them. So The Questers on Saga is my book series, and it's a series of four books, planned four books. The next, the third book is over halfway finished, and it's a science fiction and fantasy epic. It's beginning in heliopause. It's set in late in the 23rd century in our solar system, at the edge of the solar system, which is the heliopause, beyond which is interstellar space. There's a research station there called Mandira, and a station worker named Forrester, who's been there just about a year, starts experiencing some strange phenomena. He sees flashes of light that no one else can, and starts to think he's going crazy. And meanwhile, a captain of a supply ship comes under attack by an unseen foe, and they're worried that this menace could attack the rest of the space station and then eventually move into the rest of the solar system. So they have to try to stop it in time. And as a result of the actions of that, it sort of blows things open for humanity in a way we anticipated. And in the second book, Ephemeris, you see the scale is actually galactic in that in Ephemeris, which takes place before, during, and after Heliopause, recounts the perspective of Galadea, who looks human but is not. So there's a mystery behind her, her becoming Integrated with humanity is a big theme, and even though we don't know exactly her origins, she, she was raised in a star city full of androids. And so when she eventually does meet up with real human beings, which she looks like, she has a little bit of a hard time adjusting to that. It's, um, she's a little feral and awkward, socially awkward, and that leads to some kind of hilarious interactions with humans later. She seems rather innocent, but she also has an emotional side of her that is a little out of control at first and she needs to control her emotions and temper and things I like that. I could only imagine living with androids that uh, might have been part of the reason. Right, and you would think, oh, well, wouldn't she be calmer like a robot? But no, she, she was unchecked. Like if you, she's an ageless person, so she looks like a young woman. She was never a baby, for example. So she's just literally came into being as a young woman in appearance, although she's ageless and she was on the Star City Demetron for many years, an android who leads the city named Oniodi basically serves as her surrogate father because she has no parents. And so he lets her run amok, essentially, he teaches her things, but he doesn't know how to teach her how to be a human because he's an android and he's an alien android at that, he's not made by humans. And so she, she has no sense of what it is to be a human, and she's basically like a, an adult toddler, you know, running around with high temper, getting flustered all the time, and, you know, and he doesn't really know how to deal with that. He's an android, so he just, she freaks out. He's like, oh, I'll just, I'll calm, try to calm you down. He's calm because, hey, he doesn't get upset. Yeah, he's just totally chilled out and doesn't care, but she's a mess, and, and when she is chosen to be a representative of the human race, and because she looks human and they think that that's what she is. There's a number of beings that represent different races in the galaxy, that intelligent life, um, sentient life, space traveling life. 
And she's, people think, oh, well, obviously she's supposed to be representative, so she needs to be trained as such by the governing body called the associates. And so they start that process and that's a bumpy ride too, because immediately, uh, basically a galactic mage named Ariad jumps in, having met her and thinks, oh, okay, she is extremely innocent, she's beautiful, I'm gonna train her first. But then of course that sets up a bit of a trap for him and for her that, you know, she's kind of like in my fair lady situation. So, um, and that's a bumpy ride, because eventually when she leaves him, she will eventually meet humans and then she has no good template for how to react to them. So she has to learn from them. And then once she does that and she jumps into the fray and she reunites with some people from Heliopause and really gets things cracking and they have to try to stop that, ma that malevolent force, Payash Johanna, at the same time, there's a galactic calamity called the event that everybody's been kind of preparing for and it starts to begin. And, and that force is going to feed off the suffering related to the event, which leads to a whole bunch of problems. And she is possibly one of the only things that can stop it because she's not affected by it. Anyone that comes around it is put in a state of torture that they can't get out of. And that being feeds on suffering, but she's, it can't attack her. And so there's, they maybe have a weapon with her or at least some sort of protection. And she has to work with people who are telepaths to kind of channel her power eventually. She's got to learn how to use that power. So all of this is basically what happened with Forster and Heliopause, you know, eventually zips together with Ephemeris. And so you start to see what's really at stake and who the players are and the fact that they need more humans with telepathic powers they also need regular humans too to help fight this force before it takes over the galaxy so that's what's going on in the questresan saga wow that's awesome you know what i love about the story is that it's so similar to real life uh you know people are talking about all this new technology that's coming out uh, especially automation and artificial intelligence taking over jobs and who knows, will it take over the job as a parent? So it's nice to see that you still need human parents. Yes, definitely. And there's a lot, I, I try to emphasize that a lot in the stories. There's a very human element and that any aspect of technology relates back to humanity, including the artificial intelligence of one of the uh, co-workers of Forster on Mandira named Dunstan Gibbons. His AI is named Veronica. And the relationship he has with that AI is not typical. And it's not just your regular AI system that you know, can play your music and help you with your research and things like that. There's more going on with her than meets the eye. But it's still, he needs that humanity, you know, the reminder he lost someone and you know, she fills that void for him. So Diane, you know, as you know, uh, we like talking about technology such as IoT, cybersecurity, and artificial intelligence. They are influenced by science fiction, right? So right. as a sci-fi writer and a research scientist, what technology trends are you seeing that might have been influenced by science fiction? Well, of course, you know, anytime you think about relying on AI computers, like calling up something, I automatically think of Star Trek, you know, like computer, you know, and all this and having that prompt. And so we've, we've now reached that point with you know, Siri and Google Home and Alexa and things like that. Basically, we're already there, which is kind of fun because, you know, that was originally set in the 23rd century and that these things are happening now. So 
I really want to talk about, though, one science fiction movie that really stood out for me when I'm thinking in terms of particularly health research is AI and machine learning and things like that is Gattaca. And so in the film Gattaca, if you've not seen it, first of all, let's look at the title Gattaca and the spelling of it. And you see that the letters G, A, T, and C are in the word Gattaca. And those are the base pair names, the, the letters in DNA. So when we talk about the future of AI in healthcare, I, what I'm really seeing involves genomics because we're looking at databases like 23andMe, for example. And I know that researchers like Peter Donnelly, uh, they're looking at these massive databases and there's so much information there for millions of people. You have their genomes. So you need an artificial intelligence to zero in on genes that lead to disease. And in so doing, you know, with all the computational power you have and all the millions of people you have involved that are part of these databases, uh, you can find sequences of genes that, you know, lead to disease-causing proteins. And we can try to figure out from there how to tailor drug therapies, you know, like fix that broken protein, essentially fix the gene. And you could, you could do that by comparing, you know, the genomes of normal people and people with the disease and seeing how, where the little subtle differences are. So in the movie Gattaca, everybody knows everybody's genetic makeup. And so, you know, the disease, like the main character is covering up his you know, risk of heart disease and all these other um, bad health problems that would never get him a position to launch into space. You know, he would not even be considered. So he's trying to cover that up. And it's and in that situation, it's sort of Orwellian lack of privacy. Everybody knows everybody's genetic problems, you know, but what we really, that's kind of a, a scary way of looking at it, like having your privacy be disappearing like that. But at the same time, that tech is coming where we will know, you know, what your genetic you know, potential is or not. And I hope that we can cure those diseases. So that's where that, that aspect of healthcare is going. In my books, when I talk about Veronica, the AI of Gibbons, uh, she's his computer, his music player, researcher, his companion. I think on the companion sense, that could come in handy for healthcare as well, um, particularly in situations where, you know, you're removed for whatever reason, you're maybe not having social anxiety, you can use AI to participate with your medical care. I could see that becoming more prevalent. We already use that a little bit when we're emailing doctors and things like that. But I really think it's gonna involve care. And you know, there's another piece on Mandira Station, there's things called medic bots. And medic, medic is like a, a robot that can interact with you and have emotive properties and soothe you, converts into a wheelchair, can convert into a surgical, you know, position. And in, they're uh, literally coming out with these things today. Right. So they're here now. It's just that in the future, it's going to be much more emotionally related and they'll be able to zero in pretty much quickly on without needing a doctor. You know, like, okay, you need these migraine dots. Here you go. It just produces them right then and there. Things like that. So that stuff is coming and that's what's exciting about it. It's that it's really happening. And, you know, I think that it's a wonderful thing to move forward in healthcare in that regard. So but I think a lot of it will have to do in care, not just for genetics, but also just um, treating people, people's emotions and things like that. How can we, how can we deal with mental health with using AI? I want to see that happen. You know, like I also think that another big trend, 
and this is maybe, maybe the most important of all because it affects so many things, is fairness. Uh, not just in healthcare, but across the board, using AI and fairness. Because if you think about it, people who are writing programs, there's going to be some inherent bias. And there's been problems with things like job databases where you have traditionally white male you know, situation and some programmer who has that background. And it's just sort of built in that, you know, you have like this, this bias of setting up a situation where you might be filtered out if you don't fall under that category. So what we want is to remove any discrimination and, and have a broad focus of, you know, fairness, uh, representation for all abilities throughout AI systems. So we need to, we need to work on fairness and moving forward in AI. Wow, I mean, you hit on so many major topics there. Uh, let's take the mental health um, scenario, for example. I mean, as we know, a lot of people are not seeking mental health because there's this stigma, uh, you know, that if you seek out mental health, you know, there's something wrong with you. And second of all, you might lose your job or, you know, some other uh, social uh, ramifications. Uh, so that would be really nice to have that capability with AI to treat mental health exactly. and uh, do it in the privacy and dignity. Right. And then connect you with a human healthcare professional, which I do think will still be essential. We are still humans and we still need that connection. And, you know, I touch on this, I'll touch on this a little bit later. So, but I do think that it could really change people's lives for the better. And I'm hoping that there's a lot of focus being put into AI and mental health. Now, I'm truly amazed by this uh, constant and rapid innovation in technology, such as the AI and the Internet of Things and even 5G technology, which will be uh, a big part in having all these connected devices out there. Right. I mean, you know, just imagine within a few short years, there'll be billions of them out there connecting our cities, our homes, our businesses. They'll allow doctors to perform surgery across the world. I mean, they're already doing that, but it's going to be mainstream. I mean, we're literally living in science fiction. We are. And it's happening at such an exponential rate that, you know, there's going to be a point, I think it might be kind of hard to project, well, what is the future going to be like? You know, like we've I don't know that we are hitting a wall as writers and maybe we just, uh, we keep, we need to keep thinking, well, how do we expand these things that used to be future tech that are now tech, you know, how can we make them more extraordinary, you know, things like that. So that's been interesting. And, you know, you think about, I was thinking about how, you know, in Star Trek Next Generation, you have the replicator and like Captain goes and orders tea or great hot or whatever you can order. We already have that. We have it. We have it in terms of 3D printing. And, you know, we have smart fridges that are going to order you more milk when it's, you know, your milk is getting low, things like that. We have Siri and Alexa and Google Home to answer all our questions and play music and do all kinds of things. We're really there. And one thing that's interesting, I'm a parent of two Gen Z kids, you know, they're 12 and 10 respectively. And my kids have grown up with this being there. They don't know a life without it. So it's probably, it's quaint to watch next generation with them and be like, well, that used to be kind of, you know, unrealistic and fantastical. And here you are, you have it in your hand. So, but they just, it's second nature to them. So I can't wait to see how the mindset of those kids of that iGen or Gen Z, having that as their baseline, what are they going to come up with? Right? Because it's going to be extraordinary and it's going to be different from what we could have come up with because we were limited in technology 
And now it's exponentially increasing and will continue to do so. So who knows what's coming, but I can't wait to find out. Yeah, for sure. You know, my daughter just got herself a uh, VR headset and, you know, it's just amazing. I tried it on and you're literally inside another world. Now, all you need are these haptic gloves and you could literally interact with that world. Think of the holodeck. I know, exactly. Yeah. And that's going to, I think that will help with mental health as well. And, you know, because you could, you could be in a situation where it would almost seem like you're telepathic, right? Because you would be, you could be in a holodeck situation in which you're connected with people around the world and, and you're really there with them. It would almost seem as if you were a telepath, which you know, I touch on in my book. And that, and those cases in my books, it's biological, it's not computer based, but I don't, I really think though that we're, we're almost there, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, Elon Musk is talking about hooking people up to, you know, hooking right. people's brains up to computers. Right. And so then you had, a, you would have a network of wetware and software basically. Right. So uh, <laughs> I think, yeah, we're, I think we're right about there. We're really close. So Diane, as can be expected, a topic like this generates a lot of interest and excitement. And we actually have a few questions from the audience. Okay, great. So our first question is from Tamara McCleary. She's the CEO of Thulium in Colorado and also a global influencer in AI. So Tamara says, as a novelist and someone who has a visionary mind, what would the singularity look like? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, researchers think we're getting close to the singularity. Some people think we're, you know, many years away. Some people think it's 30 years. I think it's going to be sooner. I have no way of knowing that, of course. And will we know when it happens? Will we actually know? Uh, barring some sort of global catastrophe, it's coming and it will happen. And so from my point of view, I'm not really sure what it's going to look like. I touched on telepathy and I kind of think maybe that's where it's going to head that maybe the interconnectivity of it will seem as if, you know, AI is telepathic and, um, and we integrate it with ourselves too, to a point, but once it's on its own, I don't know, you know, and you know, there's a lot of, you know, we think about things like Terminator and matrix and those are a little bit fear mongering, but I think there's just a lot we don't know about what's going to happen with it. But I, I, my perspective is I'm excited about it and what I'm going to be paying attention to are any ethical aspects of it related to it. Because with my science background, especially from clinical research to me, it's, and genomics as well, it's all about the ethics, like how is this going to play with humans and are we going to, how are we going to respond? Like we're going to have people I think that still will fear it, but I would hope that it inspires wonder and cooperation, you know, for our eventual robot overlords or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and the ethics uh, are a great point. And that's something that's, you know, good for uh, an entire conversation in and of itself. Right. You could go on and on about ethics alone. So, yeah. So Tamara actually had a second question and she says, they say real life is stranger than fiction. How does real life fuel your science fiction writing? Well, when I started writing, I lived in a pretty rural area of East Tennessee, and so I spent a lot of time outdoors. This is back in the 80s, you know, so it was very stranger things, you know, riding around on my bike, having adventures, maybe not with demogorgons, but I used to imagine things like that in portals to other worlds. So I, I used that kind of as a basis for my writing and filtered through, even though when you write, like, 
I tend to write indoors, although sometimes I did write in trees, uh, just because I was always in a tree. It's always either reading or writing all the time. But I think my background is in ecology and evolutionary biology, and I've drawn upon that in my work. Because uh, there's always that, no matter what situation, you're still human, no matter where you're at, and you crave reality, you crave fresh air, green leaves. You see that in my books. In Heliopause, there's a conservatory where people can go and, and be kind of in a natural environment. The main character misses coastal Oregon. And so, you know, he'll project holograms that resemble Oregon in his room just to, just to feel connected to that. And, and in Ephemeris, there's traveling to a lot of different planets. And so I draw upon my ecology background and my zoology background, talk about species and ecosystems and environments and, and even farming to an aspect. And I, what I like is, I like when my characters take the time to notice where they are. It makes the place seem real, you know, and, and the, what kind of beings are there, you know, really flesh it out. So in terms of character development, I, I almost have a photographic memory for dialogue from different parts of my life, most of my life. So I kind of like to spike my science fiction with that. And that's how real life affects fiction. You can put people in an extraordinary setting but they're still going to be people and I want them to be realistic and grounded and have needs and desires and miss things and crave things like good coffee and, you know, things like that. So I think that everybody's longing for companionship and stumbling over, you know, loneliness and out in the void. So that definitely is something that we can all appreciate. Like you don't have to be at the edge of the solar system or in the middle of nowhere in the galaxy and feel lonely. You could be sitting in a room full of people and feel lonely and feel unattached. And, you know, I draw upon those anxieties and, and you know, what I, what I would have once called weaknesses, but they're really not weaknesses. It's just part of who we are. Yeah, exactly. That's what makes it so enjoyable when you read about the different emotions that uh, the characters go through. Yeah, we're all people, even if we're not human. I would imagine that if there are sentient species out there that they have their own mess they have to go through and, and things about themselves they have to figure out, one would think so. I don't think anybody out there is gonna be perfect, so. So our next question is from Yola Burnett. Yola is the Vice President of GFK Consumer Life in uh, New York City. And Yola asks, what are some of the sources of inspiration for the sci-fi world and the technology and tools that exist in the universe? Well, for my series, if we're talking about my series, I would say I was inspired by the greats like Ray Bradbury with Martian Chronicles, Dune by Frank Herbert, iRobot by Asimov. And so I drew inspiration from those. That was a good framework to grow up on. And then of course, movies like Star Wars and which was, I think it was the first movie I saw in the theater because uh, I thought Alderaan was Earth and that we'd blown up the Earth. So, but then uh, I was also influenced by L. Frank Baum, the, who wrote the Oz books and he wrote 14 Oz books and, and there's such an outrageousness to his stories and his characters that I've drawn on, on that. Like, just think of the craziest characters and situations and like, he, he's already done, he did it a hundred years ago, over a hundred years ago. So I've drawn on that and shows like Star Trek and Babylon 5, um, movies like Alien and The Thing. And so, and I, so the way I've related those things to my own literary universe is things like sustainable space stations and materials that have extraordinary powers, which of course 
superhero comics talk about that all the time and always have. Spacecraft that can travel through wormholes across vast distances, you know, you have huge galactic databases. And then you have the regular everyday stuff like the holograms in your, in your bedroom that you can project so that you're moved into an exotic locale or a familiar one, whatever you want. And, you know, I touched on nature being an influence and, you know, having Mandira with its conservatory. But I think, you know, we're also, in, I'm, I'm inspired by flawed humanity, not just by the extraordinary fun tools and toys that you have, like spaceships and weird crystals that can power and all these things that are technological or maybe a little fantastical, but maybe it's tech we haven't understood yet, things like that, which is what people often say magic is um, in, in fiction. But it's really to going back to flawed humanity. Uh, how does it affect our integration into something greater and into a greater worldview, into a galactic scope? And we live in a time, just like my characters, of powerful technologies but it's our connection to each other that informs our happiness and well-being. Um, the technology is just the icing on the cake. Now, Diane, I understand that when you're not writing spellbinding novels, you're working with clients on various projects, such as writing about technology, the environment, or other interesting topics. What kinds of topics do you love to write about, and how do people connect with you to engage you on a project? Well, I love to write and I love to write about anything, not just about science fiction, not just about science and technology, but really anything I've, I've written. I've written articles about travel and food. It's just writing is what I have to do and I love it. So, but I recently have been working in nonfiction, like science writing for the past several years. And so I use my science background for some of that and my love for science definitely helps out with the different topics I talk about from either animals to astronomy, ecology and the environment. And I like, I like connecting a reader to any, any level of reading to information that they can digest. And yet, you know, it's not dumbed down. It's just, it's clean. It's, it's straightforward. It gives them a beginning step to other materials that they can go and research themselves if they want to. And one thing I've really loved that's happened this year now that I have two books out and I have been a science writer, I have been invited to different panels. And one of them was at WonderCon. And the commonality for all these panels is that there's a connection between science and science fiction. So they like the fact that I can talk about science and I can talk about science fiction. And you know, you kind of have to talk about them both together. So it, I've really enjoyed being invited to those. And I've also enjoyed being parts of projects like, like this and podcasts and interviews. I like making lists like the, I was asked to make a list of the top sci-fi novels, which is of course a very volatile list and everybody has a strong opinion about, but it's super fun and it's meant to open dialogue and share, what's your favorite? You know, what do you think is the must read sci-fi novel or fantasy novel? And I just, a lot of these things have come about through social media. So that's been a lot of fun for me, not only connecting to new readers, but also to connecting to people like you and um, talking about technology and science and how is all is going to affect us in the future. So I welcome discussion. I love talking to the public in person or online. And uh, you know, that's just, and I'm never going to stop writing or stop loving to write, but I'm, I'm really finding that sharing my knowledge or opening dialogue and discussion about science and science fiction are really rewarding for me. Great. And how do people reach you? You can reach me 
through social media, through my website, jdianedodson.com. You can email me. I'm on all the social media. You can watch my YouTube channel. You can make comments there. You can follow me on Twitter, jdianedodson with two N's and Diane. Um, and Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, writer. LinkedIn, I'm everywhere. You can connect with me through there. You can contact me through email from my site. You can sign up for my newsletter, Notes from the Spiral Arm, and that comes out usually about once a week. That sign-ups on my website. And, you know, it's just engage with me however you feel comfortable, and let's open a dialogue. I love it. Awesome, and I'll post that to the show notes so people can just click on it and get right Great. to it. Thank you. Diane, do you have any parting words of wisdom that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, we live in just the most amazing time of connectivity, right? You know, we're connected through the internet by social media. We're putting our Instagram stories of, of everything out there. What did we eat? Where did we go to the beach? What are we wearing? And we feel this is an amazing moment, right? We're so connected. I'm reaching out to people across the country, across the world, and wow, so connected. But at the end of the day, many of us still feel lonely. You know, our fridges can order milk, but they can't help us feel less lonely. It does help to connect online, especially if you're introverted. It's a really wonderful way to connect. Uh, I'm not introverted, but I understand many people are. And so what happens when our spirits run low? You know, I think we still need the human element. We don't want to ignore it in future tech, which brings me back to the AI and mental health. We want to work with technology to make people feel whole and understood, listened to, represented at any level of ability, at any level of background, whatever, and you know, make you feel like a real human being. So we, we need to remember that we are not machines, that we need other people and they need us. And so I want to move forward thinking that we can still be connected and not get lost in the weeds of tech. We can make tech work for us. We can remove bias, you know, and, and discrimination so that we have better information that can help people's lives for their health, for their mental health, for, you know, getting a job, anything. And so I, I want to continue with the very best of humanity in mind to influence tech. And we have choices in how we're going to do this. So I think we need to do it consciously. And also let's not forget to welcome the wonder. Love that. Diane, thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom. I really enjoyed having you on the show. Thank you. My pleasure.